1: Well, hello, everyone. Stuck, you here?
2: And I'm Gabby.
1: And welcome, everyone, back to the History of Everything podcast. Now, from the beginning, you all can probably guess here from the title that today's episode that we are talking about is Rome. If you haven't been listening to or watching any of the content that I've been putting out for the past week leading up to this podcast releasing, well... Go wh- back
2: and watch those Where the hell right have you been? Now.
1: Literally, where the hell have you been? We, we put out a bunch of stuff. Go back and actually watch that on the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Like this is this might even be for some of you, your first episode listening. I don't even know. But if it is, hey, welcome in, which I honestly think that for any uh, history program whatsoever, Gabby, that this is this is arguably the starting point for a lot of history nerds like ancient Rome. I mean, if we're, if we're looking at things, it usually falls into a couple of categories. Rome and World War Two. And that is usually the majority of people start for when it comes to history, at least in terms of the West, for like what they're interested in.
2: Where I started in history was Tinder. So I'm not like the others.
1: Are you referring to me in that yeah. or are you okay, <laughs> I'm referring okay. to you? Okay. That <laughs> makes way more sense now, actually. I was thinking about like, under what circumstances was she getting questions where she was talking about that? She never would have talked to anyone about that. And I'm remembering, oh no, our entire initial conversations were uh, rugby, and Skyrim lore and history.
2: Also, I don't remember how to podcast. I haven't recorded an episode in over a month. Yeah. So I'm so sorry.
1: has been a while because of Europe, but hey, we're possibly coming back there again uh, pretty soon. So really just depends on what it is that we're going to be doing here in the next couple months.
2: Okay, now tell me about Rome. Is this about the audiobook? Because it was really good. Yes. It's just, you have to definitely have a passion for Rome, I think. Yeah, it's it's dense
1: because it's not like something that is talking about a specific kind of battle uh, or anything like that. It has a lot of battles. It has a lot of pivotal moments. The, The book that we've chosen here today for the Chirp Audiobook Club pick of the month is Ancient Rome by Simon Baker. So what this is, is the story of what is arguably the greatest empire that the world has ever known. It covers the rise and fall of the world's first superpower at least in terms of the West, because of course you have the Qin Chinese dynasty in the East, but these are really the two great ones. And the book focuses on not just one or two things, but six different massive points that shaped Roman history into what we would know and come to study later. This is, this is Rome in all of its awesome, gritty, beautiful, awful, everything. It, it's got a lot of great moments. It's got a lot of horrible moments. But as I've said here many, many times in all of our different history programs, uh, yeah, horrible thing that happened in history. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome to reality. That's kind of how it goes.
2: I really like this because I got so many cool little fun facts. I'm like, there's no way he knows this. So the fact about, like the boat one, yeah, where Rome started their navy because they conquered a, a ship sailing from Carthage. And I was like, oh, guess where Rome got its navy? And he's like, oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, that hurt my feelings.
1: <laughs> it's, it's one of the classic Again, when I say this, we're talking about Rome. So a lot of the information that I, I was even preparing for talking about this podcast is not new. But there was a whole bunch of more details in there that I myself wasn't aware of and, and, and could add in that I thought were really fun. See. Again, we're talking about the Roman Empire. This is something that you're talking about the conquest of the Mediterranean in the third century, going all the way to its collapse in the fourth century AD. So we're talking BC to AD. Like it's the empire itself lasted a ridiculously long time. And this, of course, sounds like a rather expansive series of topics. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. And that's true. It is. It's huge. We're talking about, again, one of the greatest empires in history. And as a result, there are an infinite number of things that we could talk about. And because of that, I promise you in the future, we are going to come back and talk about more of these things in Rome. But for the sake of this podcast, not taking 12 hours, I had to choose one thing in here to talk about. So I picked the Punic Wars, one of the classic starting points that when you are looking at Rome and Roman history. The Punic Wars are one of the big defining moments that, that that is what made Rome into the Roman Empire that we would remember. So have you heard that phrase before, Gabby, like for Punic?
2: I have heard Punic and I've heard of the Punic Wars because you mentioned them in a lot of videos. So usually yeah. when you're making a video or recording a short, I'm sitting there and you're like, oh, yeah, the third Punic War. And I'm like, cool. But I have no idea what actual for
1: reference. Are. Oh, yeah, I understand. That. I know
2: you talk about a lot of Punic Wars, but I don't know what they are.
1: So for anyone that might not immediately be aware, the uh, the Punic Wars were a series of conflicts that were fought between Carthage and Rome between 264 B.C. and 146 B.C. So it was three different wars spread out over the course of like 80 years, and they were huge. Now, Rome won all three of these wars which allowed the romans to effectively dominate the mediterranean region which before had been primarily controlled by carthage for its sea lanes cuz i mean it's it's the mediterranean it's the mediterranean sea and prior to this conflict carthage had grown from being a small port to the richest and most powerful city in the mediterranean before 260 bc it had a very powerful navy it had an army that was primarily being composed of mercenaries and whether it was through tribute tariff Trade or any or mines, any number of things that could give it wealth. It had so much wealth that it could pretty much do whatever it is that it wanted. It never necessarily had a really high population base, but it could just throw money at a problem and fix it. That's why its armies were primarily composed of mercenaries in the first place. So Carthage has a treaty with what is then the rather small city of Rome. And what this treaty made happen or i guess what it forced is that it barred rome from trade in the western mediterranean and because rome had no navy there there was nothing that they could actually do to enforce it or not to enforce it but to counter it because carthage was the one with all of the naval ships so roman traders that were caught in carthaginian waters would end up getting drowned and having their ships taken whatever could be done to limit the power and keep control of trade in carthage's hand that is what they would do but these roles would be completely reversed after the first Punic War, and over time, the Carthaginians would progressively lose more and more power, wealth, prestige, and everything. They lost everything in later conflicts. By the time of the third Punic War, Carthage was really no longer any form of military or political power. Now, I'm saying this from the beginning, this is a spoiler alert, but we're talking history, and it feels dumb for me even say spoiler alert because this is quite literally one of the most popular historical stories of ancient warfare. So if, if this is if this is like your first time hearing about any of this, I am sorry if I've spoiled the ending already, but we know historically that Rome becomes the great power and not Carthage.
2: I just want to know, has anyone ever done a spoiler alert for history? no. History teacher's like, spoiler alert.
1: I mean, we're talking about a podcast, right? So we're telling the story of how Rome beat Carthage and how it came to be the Roman Empire. You might give some kind of hints of things. Oh,
2: no, now they're not going to listen to the end. Guys, forget you heard that. Maybe Carthage wins.
1: You know, I can't even counter that because you're probably... Yeah, let's let's just throw it up in the air. Let's just throw it up in the air. But this is the story of how that all happens. But before we do that, it's time for an ad break. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we're back. Okay, so this is the story. The second Punic War... That is the one that I want to to focus on, because this one was arguably the most famous of the wars with characters such as Hannibal Barca, one of the greatest generals to ever live and a man who would most certainly haunt the minds of Romans as a kind of boogeyman for decades. This this man, Hannibal Barca, Alexander the Great, uh, Napoleon, when we're talking about uh, Khalid ibn Awalid. All of these different figures are the, some of the greats referred to for generals, and Hannibal is up there in that list. So Hannibal was a general in the Second Punic War, which was fought between Carthage and Rome between 218 and 201 B.C. This war went on for 17 years. Yes, I see the look on your face here, Gabby. That is the tale of the Punic War. The first one was 25 years. It was horrible so if we're gonna provide a little backstory to this so you understand following the terms of surrender in 241 bc carthage lost the longest war in ancient history up to that point at least the longest that we can prove which was 25 years long and they agreed to withdraw from sicily and to pay reparations to rome in the form of 3200 talents
2: reparations have been around for that long
1: oh as long as there's been war you gotta think A lot of early war that people would fight over was control of, you know, territory and money and things like that. That's what you'd want. So you'd want to seize mines, farmland, etc. So especially the longer war drags out, the more you are going to want to seize from your from your enemy.
2: Why did I think reparation was a like modern concept? Like at the end of war, you know, at the end of World War II where they were like, oh, yeah, you're you're responsible. Someone has
1: to pay reparations. Right.
2: I thought they just made that up right then and there.
1: Nope. It has been a thing forever. In fact, we say reparations in this case. One of the most common things in history, if it wasn't reparations, was that the loser had to pay tribute was oftentimes the term that we use. So if you can if you see after a war, the word tribute, unless it was a war to make someone a vassal, that tribute is basically reparations. That, that, that's what it is. It's, it's to compensate all of the losses monetarily that the other country took because of the war. Now. I said 3,200 talents. That is a little detail there that it oftentimes confuses people when they first hear about it. You, If you've ever read anything within the Bible, you've probably heard of the word talent before. Like, you've probably seen it in some of the stuff that you would study in any of the biblical classes, like back at Asbury.
2: Yeah, actually, I think. Yeah, in the New Testament.
1: Yeah. For D- sure. So do you know what a talent is overall? A quarter. Quarter. No it's a lot more than that so the con- $5 so if um if a quarter or whatever is a representation of a fraction of a certain amount a a talent is something that is measured by weight so you know how most currency was um it was based off the purity of the metal and the amount of the metal that is what actually determined its value when you were looking at ancient coinage so a talent in ancient history is a unit of weight that corresponded to the uh, the amount of gold or silver that was in a type of coin or something. So a Roman talent was something that was 71 pounds of silver. There were different nations. Like, I think Egypt's talent was 60 pounds or so.
2: Did they have, like, conversion, like, units of conversion back in the day? Like, how did they handle um, currency exchange?
1: You've seen those um those those weight measuring things like the scales, right?
2: Wait, you could put um a magnet underneath and completely rob yes, someone.
1: Exactly, exactly those. So if the value of something is based off its weight and you're looking at, oh, it needs to be this amount in coins, like this amount, if someone is coming with foreign currency that is made of silver or whatever, and they know the components like, oh, this is a coin that's made of silver. All right, well, what we're going to do is we have the unit of weight that corresponds to the price that we're talking about for this specific item. We're going to put it on the scale, and then we're going to put those silver coins on the other side of the scale. If it equals out, then that means it's worth. It's, how did it's they
2: trust that the person's unit of weight for that silver coin was not false?
1: Oh, it got worse. Like, that's the thing. It, it depended on the skill of the merchant. It depended on the validity of their tools, like how accurate they were. There's a whole host of different factors that went into it. And later on in the Roman Empire, they ran into some really bad coin issues because it was such a large empire with so few sources of silver and gold in it relative to the amount that was leaving in order to pay for its trade. Like it had a huge trade deficit with India, huge. So their their coins, as they were trying to pay for the army and for trade and for everything else, they kept on having to debase them. Putting in weaker and more worthless metals is a mix. So like 100% pure silver to 90% pure silver to 50% pure silver to, you know, you just kept on getting lower until the coins were basically worthless so that they could print more of them. That was, that was how you printed money was you debased the currency and you made more coins out of the same like metal.
2: So inflation, that that is actually the first time I've ever understood inflation. Yep. Wow. Thank you, Rome.
1: Because you could always, you know, print money in the case of paper. But if it's physical metal, the way that they did that was they just mixed silver or gold with other cheaper metals. And that's that's how you got the coin. So you could take one silver coin and turn it into two cheaper silver coins that were half silver or whatever. That's.
2: So anyway,
1: <laughs> Yeah, we're getting on a whole topic here about coinage. <laughs> but see, that's what happens with these. Um, that's what happens with these uh, these tangents.
2: Sorry, guys, it's my fault.
1: No, no, it's a good question. And that's why I love talking about this stuff. A Roman talent was 71 pounds, I said. So 3,200 talents, 3,200, meant that Rome was demanding 227,000 pounds of silver. That is an insane amount. If you actually measure that uh, in today, like if you look up the cost of silver, which I think is like 270, like, like right now, I think it's like 271 Dollars per pound or so, like in American dollars, we're talking about $62 million, which if you're thinking of a cost of a war, that's not a lot. When the U.S. was uh, was waging war in Iraq, it was costing us approximately a billion dollars a month to run per month.
2: I was going to say something, but people say I'm too political, so (laughs) I'm not saying anything.
1: So that's what it was. But that is for a modern day economy modern day economies with significantly more people, significantly more resources and reserves that wouldn't cut it. But for an ancient people where there is significantly less people, that is crippling. The economy is so much smaller that $62 million back then. If you want to adjust for inflation, I don't even know how I would adjust for inflation because it's like not the same country. But if you look at the cost of like what something was worth that easily measures in the billions, many, many billions, right? And this was after 25 years of conflict. So both of these empires were already ruined from this.
2: Did they actually pay it?
1: Yeah, they did.
2: So they had the money to pay it. Well, they were they not got that it. bad off. They got it. Did they borrow it?
1: No. No, no, no. That's a good point. That's because, a good point. Remember, because that happens. kept
2: borrowing to pay Rome? Yes. So they didn't borrow it? No. They just had it?
1: No, they, they obtained it. W- and by, when
2: you say obtain,
1: Listen, <laughs> when talking about obtaining things in the ancient world, what is usually the answer for how someone gets something? They
2: commandeered it through peaceful means by asking politely. Duh
1: forcefully politely if anything forcefully politely we'll put it that way so i'll i'll explain that here but the um the first punic war was a huge cost for both sides but the reason why rome won is that they seemed to have inexhaustible resources especially its capacity to just a fleet got destroyed an army got destroyed oh no what are we going to do i guess we'll just build and make another one they just did it again and again and again every time one got destroyed they just built another one they just they just did it again so, Carthage just could not compete in the long term game with Rome. They couldn't. And so, Rome took over Carthage's mantle as the ruler of the seas. And thus, if Carthage wanted to gain control of the seas back from its enemy, it would have to fight on land and take the fight to Rome. If you were going to do that, that was going to require a lot of money, especially considering that they were already now horribly in debt from having, well, not even in debt, but they, it was over a 10-year period, I think it was. They had to pay installments for the reparations. So they had to get money to not only pay the reparations, but also now build up a whole new army. But before Carthage could think about Rome, it had to deal with a lot of the issues that they had closer to home. They had something called the, um, the Mercenary War between 241 and 237 BC. Remember how I told you that most of Carthage's forces were composed of mercenaries rather than native Carthaginians? Because they had money to throw at problems. So that's what they did. They just bought mercenary armies and threw them. Yeah. 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 So, um, so but I'm
2: sure that didn't go well.
1: Well, think about this 25 years of war, you spent all of your money and now are horribly in debt to the Roman state. They had no money to pay the mercenaries. So you have all of these armed men in your country that are not getting paid. What do you think their course of action is?
2: They're going to take your country.
1: They're going to take your country or they're going to try.
2: How did they not see that happening?
1: It's not that they didn't see it happening. It's that that was the consequence. Like there was nothing that they could do to stop it.
2: Did they really think they could win with mercenaries? Like here's the thing. I understand having mercenaries and you could just keep paying because I've played EU4. Like I've seen what you could do. But Rome had like loyal men, loyal men to Rome, like a leadership strategy Mm -hmm. that was obviously going to win.
1: Mm -hmm. well i mean leadership is a a whole other thing the big thing is being able to pull up the reserves of manpower and there was no way for the carthaginians to recover it's like
2: so how did they stomp this um mercenary uprising
1: well they send in the troops because they still do have some troops they can use themselves it's harsh but it does work they they have to go through and they have to take out i think there were several cities that they had to take out such as tunis and utica i believe is the other name and there were a whole host of different rival groups because it wasn't just the mercenaries, but also Libyans that were also rebelling against them because the Libyans were like a, uh, a I don't want to use the term, tributary state. They were effectively a vassal. They, Carthage could draw upon their manpower. And so a bunch of Libyan men and like tribesmen rose up against them and they had to put it all down. Into this comes Hamilcar Barca, who was a leader in the First War, and he gets recalled from Sicily in order to quash the rebellion. Meanwhile, as this happens, Rome goes and seizes control of Sardinia, which had been Carthage's most important source of grain, because it produced a lot more than what they were able to in North Africa. Without having any kind of significant fleet, and with no fortresses that they could use to protect their more strategically important parts in Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia, the Carthaginians had to turn to other places in order to try and secure money to be able to fund their armies and pay their debts. The answer that they came to was Spain. Now, Spain was something that had always been in their purview. They had long since controlled a number of older Phoenician colonies that were there, and it had already proven that there were a number of very rich silver mines that were in the area. And as a result of that, Hamilcar Barca is dispatched in 237 BC to go and expand Carthaginian territory and influence in the region, which he does by establishing a series of bases, such as at Gade, I believe. Well, I'm not even sure how I would say it for how they would pronounce it, but it's like the modern day city of Cadiz. And he founded a new city called Akralucha, in which he supplemented his own forces with local recruits and managed to create an army of 50,000 men with a core of 100 elephants. Which, considering the beating that they had just taken, that was very impressive, and a lot of these men were levied from the local tribes, so they didn't have to worry about nearly as much in terms of manpower issues. So tribute from these places either came in the form of money or men, and it could be extracted from these cities or from the new silver mines that they were founding.
2: So they would take money or they would take recruits So if you didn't have money to pay. You would so join you, the army. So you could basically buy yourself out of fighting if you were rich enough.
1: Kind of, yeah. This
2: is sounding awfully familiar.
1: It's a common tactic throughout all of history. That is literally one of the most common things that would occur in history is like, oh, there's a thing for conscription. Next you can buy your way out draft, of
2: it. Next I'm going to just make sure I have enough money saved. So I'm not going to quit it my job. It doesn't apply today. I'm going to keep working forever. Okay, well, I have other plans. No,
1: worry. it doesn't apply. Now, it, it did in the U.S. Feel Civil like you'd War. I you be bad at war. It did in the U.S. Civil War. If you want to go back 150 years in the year, that did apply.
2: Anyway, James, cut this whole part out. Nah, <laughs>
1: nah, don't, don't. It's interesting to talk about. I, I, will, I will do my duty and not pay my way out, probably because I wouldn't have any ability to pay my way out because the, I don't think the system exists anymore. So Hannibal Barca dies in 229 B.C. because he drowns, and Hasdrubal the Fair goes and takes over for him. What? what? How did
2: he drown? You're just like, oh, yeah, he died because he drowned. I believe so casual. It
1: happened in a battle. Like, so
2: you're not leading an army and you're telling me you don't know how to swim.
1: Well, if you're in full armor and crossing a river,
2: take the armor off before you cross the river. That's also
1: dangerous because you're getting shot at with arrows and all kinds of things.
2: Why going to the river?
1: Because you need to cross the river to get to the enemy position. It's a, Why
2: it's, was he going towards the listen, enemy?
1: Logis- you have an enemy to defeat. What are you talking about?
2: Couldn't he go around somewhere, find a bridge, build a bridge?
1: Yeah, you, you ford it. Or, I mean, if you build a bridge, that's going to take a long amount of time so he'll to get do different
2: so. armor. I'm sorry, a shield?
1: Okay. The short of it is he dies, and a guy called Hasdrubal the Fair takes over, which I believe, if I recall correctly, that Hasdrubal is Hamilcar's brother-in-law, I think. I'm pretty sure it's his brother-in-law. So he goes and he adds another 10,000 infantry to his force, along with 8,000 cavalry, and his war elephants get doubled to 200. By now, Carthage controls half of the Iberian Peninsula, and Rome is becoming increasingly more and more worried about this new resurging strength of their old foe.
2: I'm kind of rooting for Carthage. Is that bad?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's an interesting not not even an underdog story. It's it's like a rivalry story where they're coming back, you know, and it's like the rival coming back from after getting beaten the first time. So, what's gonna happen? It's like it's you know it's Goku and Vegeta, except they're both really shitty people, and not just not just Goku because we're talking ancient history, <laughs> or not. It's not just Vegeta that's bad because
2: They nobody knows what you're it's talking. It's Dragon. About.
1: Everyone knows Dragon Ball Z. If I reference that, okay, that is definitely a thing that people will know. Okay. <laughs> so. We're going to talk. Okay, we'll continue with this ad break first. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent
2: and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
1: I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana.
2: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: And we're back. Okay, so Hasdrubal is now in charge and he would control things for around eight years or so himself before he would then ultimately be assassinated and Hannibal Barca would then have to take charge. At the age of 26... He is now one of the senior commanding generals and forces of one of the greatest powers in the world. And he is 26.
2: I would have been so good at at that at 26. Are you joking? That was last year for me. I was iconic last year. I got two promotions.
1: I mean, there's a reason for this. We'll definitely talk about this because this was this was going to be the catalyst that was going to lead to war. Like Hannibal was a person. I'm not even kidding when I say this. He was raised his entire life to hate Rome. That was his, per- his I, if I recall correctly, his father had some kind of, I can't even remember. I wish I wrote it down. I really wish that I wrote it down. But it was something along the lines of, for as long as you draw breath, uh, that Rome will be your enemy. Like it was the hated enemy that he was to bring down. And that was his ultimate goal. When he was a kid, Hannibal had received uh, an education that focused on language, literature, and histories of Phoenicia, Carthage was a Phoenician city, like it was of a Phoenician origin, so that's where that comes from, and also Greece. Once he joined his father in Spain when he was a boy, he received 19 years of training as a soldier. He spent the majority of his life as a soldier, like from boyhood. He was very, very in tune with military matters with the roman historians that would talk about him like in the case of livy would say he was the first to enter battle and the last to abandon the field literally the creed of what it is to be a marine in like the modern US Army, like like us military like first to enter last to leave
2: i thought that was no one left behind
1: there's a number of different phrases that are associated with military forces that is one of the ones that is associated with marines there there, there is a lot there is a, a lot to be fair now he, obviously, at this point, is the person that is going to start the conflict. But what actually is the catalyst that would, or not, not the catalyst, because I described him as the catalyst. What is the thing that would start the wars? Did
2: he insult someone?
1: No, he attacked someone.
2: It's the same thing.
1: Truth. But he, he attacked a lot of people and murdered a lot of them. Hannibal? Yes, Hannibal. Our
2: little Hannibal Barker?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we will explain that. So previously, in the year 226 BC, Hasdrubal had signed a treaty with the Romans, who were, again, becoming very concerned that the Carthaginians were expanding well into Spain. This agreement forbade the Carthaginians from crossing the Ebro River in their expansion northward. But in 219 BC, Roman agents then staged a coup in the city of Saguntum. Essentially, they replaced all the people who were pro-Carthage with pro-Roman leaders. And the the the, the pro Carthaginians were driven out or killed, and in doing so, they set up a government that was hostile to Carthage. Now Hannibal, seeing that this was now his opportunity to drive Roman influence out of Spain, went and demanded that it surrendered. He went to attack it. The leaders of the city refused. He besieged the city, and then proceeded to kill every single adult inside of it. Now there is consensus among historians that Saguntum was not north of the Ebro River. It was south. But because Saguntum was an ally of Rome, this was viewed as an attack on Roman sovereignty, on Rome's agreement that they had signed with Hasdrubal. So th- th- this was this was going to be something that was a violation. So Rome goes and demands that Hannibal be handed over for suitable punishment, and Carthage goes and declines, because Hannibal is their guy. He's their, he, he's their dude. He's their bro. He's he's the one that is leading them to greatness. And so Rome declares war in 218 BC. The Second Punic War had now officially begun.
2: They couldn't just let it slide.
1: No, they could not let it slide because not only was it a insult to Roman power and sovereignty, but simultaneously it would look horrible upon the ally of Saguntum for them to not try and avenge them. Here's the thing that I'm going to explain now, but it becomes a very crucial detail later on. When you think of Rome at this time and what they controlled, Rome controlled all of Italy. But that's not accurate. Rome controlled all of the different peoples within Italy. The Roman Republic was composed of Rome. It was composed of its different colonies that had established throughout all of Italy and those that had been Romanized. But there was still the majority of people in Rome were not Romanized. They were allies. Allies at this time were city states that were vassals. They like they swore allegiance to Rome. Like Rome was the big dominant power that controlled their politics. And that's what it was. So if Rome abandoned one of its allies, then that means that all the allies that were under its uh, under its boot, like in the boot of Italy, little, little joke there. Uh, that they they would they would revolt they they would see Rome as not actually being something that could protect them and that is a really big deal because Rome was a domineering power at this time and I'm I no one can see me right now because this is not being recorded but I'm looking at my wife and the entire time I am doing air quotes allies because they were they were conquered vassal states basically that 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 that's what it was what do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze?
0: <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's podcast.
1: and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight.
0: Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Cheers. This all leads us to the first part of the story and arguably the most famous of any of it, the crossing of the Alps. So initially, the Romans did not consider that Hannibal was going to be a serious threat from Spain. While he did possess a very good army, he didn't have a fleet to actually transport his troops to the Italian peninsula. And so in addition to that, if he tried marching northeast towards Italy, then he would have to not only fight through hostile territory, but he would also reach the Alps. If he did so, the Romans did not believe that any army would be able to cross this safely.
2: I just realized why the other Hannibal drowned. They didn't have boats.
1: It was a a river. It was like a 40,
2: he drowned in a river. That's even more embarrassing. Let I'm, the man die in peace.
1: Pretty sure he was in a charge as they were going. He
2: can just have some dignity. Pretend he died in the open ocean at sea, like a, you know, I'm trying warrior. to
1: remember. To be fair, can you consider this? You're in a boat in a naval war, somewhat like the mode of war that they have at this time is to ram your ship into an opponent's ship. You get knocked out of your ship when that happens and you fall into the water. In the ocean, and you are wearing a full suit of armor?
2: I would not be in that situation, so I cannot imagine it. But I'm so sad for him.
1: If you think, like, that just sounds awful. Like, literally one of the worst ways that you could go, in my opinion.
2: But you just said that's not how he went.
1: No, it's not. But he did drown in a river from the similar kind of thing. You go under, you can't get back up.
2: New fear unlocked.
1: Yeah, when you don't don't wear armor going into a river. I was
2: not planning on it.
1: So Hannibal goes and decides to surprise them all by invading Italy itself. The First Punic War had shown that Rome couldn't be simply defeated from the outside by, you know, choking it off, surrounding it, etc. You had to actually take it. By fighting in Rome's own territory and stirring up rebellions among all those different, quote, allied, conquered tribes and cities, it just might be defeated from within. And so to make his plan work, he was going to march through southern Gaul marched towards the Alps before the Roman response force, which they did send a response force by navy, like by boat, to attack him in Spain. He needed to get there before they could land in the area. Now, even the idea of crossing the Alps was insane. Not only would Hannibal have to contend with all the different hostile tribes that were there over the course of his entire march through it, but simultaneously, what was perhaps more important than any of it was the fact that this was the first week of September, or no, no, it was past the first week of September, and as a result of that, there was a heavy fall of new snow on the southern side of the descent of the mountains, which would be extremely hazardous for any kind of supply transports and elephants. These issues, along with desertion, would cause very significant losses for him. He had set off with a force of 90,000 soldiers and 12,000 cavalry. Do you know how many he had when he, when he got there? A lot less. A lot less. By the time he actually gets into Italy itself, he has only 20,000 men and half of the original cavalry. That is a huge amount of losses, but you have to remember that the majority of these came from like desertion and the combat that he was already facing. Not he just lost them all, you know, falling off cliffs in the mountains, though that definitely did happen. More importantly, more importantly, once he was there, he firmly believed that he would be able to replenish his forces from the northern, I'm going to use the term Gauls, but it's like the southern Gauls. It's, it's the different tribes that are in northern Italy. And as a result of that, he decides to press on. Meanwhile, in Rome, you have Consul Cornelius Publius Scipio, who realizes that Hannibal is now threatening northern Italy, and he has sent his own army onto Spain. So he goes and returns to Italy and assumes command of the Roman troops that are there in order to stop Hannibal, while his forces stay in Spain in order to fight. The other consul, Tiberius Sempronius Longus, was in Sicily preparing to invade Africa, and so when he hears about Carthage now arriving with forces in northern Italy, he rushes northward to meet them. The Romans had been effectively taken completely by surprise. Also, to to establish this from anyone who doesn't know the, the political system of Rome, the commanders of the Roman military, like the ones who were in charge and able to lead armies, these were the consuls. When you were elected to that position within the Roman Senate, there were two. So you had two consuls that would lead, you know, two armies. And those consuls were elected once each year. So once you were elected, you had one year as consul. That was it.
2: What if nothing happened that year?
1: Oh, Gabby.
2: I would I'm, be so mad. Gabby,
1: Gabby, I'm so glad you said that. I would that.
2: literally, fight someone just so something happens that year. Literally, are you joking? One year?
1: I am so glad you said that because that is the precise reason why Rome had so many aggressive issues for so many years, because you could only be a consul for one year, because achieving military glory was how you achieved more political and economic glory inside of the Roman Republic. When you were a consul, that was the most prestigious position you could possibly have. If you did not achieve military achievements during that time, your career in politics was basically over.
2: Oh, so so they had the same idea I had. So they had
1: to be super aggressive, which is the exact thing that people could use against them. And that happened time and time and time again with Hannibal, and we are going to cover that. Yeah.
2: It's literally a stupid... It is a dumb way of doing things. Like, you know how you talked about Alexander the Great, and this is off topic, but you know how you talked about Alexander the Great's, like, regent murdering his heir? Yeah. Someone was like, um, they should have had a rule where if the um heir dies, the regent dies. Like, we kill both. Both of them are dead. That would have kept so many more kids alive.
1: Just saying. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But it doesn't stop the other person from the other generals that would also assassinate them, try and try to take over.
2: How many people wanted lot, to take over? A lot. Okay, I'm well, gonna cut you off
1: right there and say a lot.
2: This whole thing is horrible.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, the, the funny, funny little detail on here uh, that aggressiveness was something that I just talked about how it could be a weakness for Rome. It was also a strength because it meant that they would be very aggressive and could attack enemies and throw them off guard just because of how forceful they could be with their movements. But they
2: could also split militaries and overextend themselves. They could. So, they yes. could completely get thoroughly beaten.
1: Carthage had one of the exact opposite stances. If a general lost a battle, they could just be executed for failure. Like, that could that could happen. If you failed militarily, that was not only a loss of prestige, but to make up for it, you could straight up be executed as an so enemy of the state. So they
2: killed their best
1: they could Yes. That literally happened. So what would happen is that when you had a Carthaginian leader, they usually played way more defensively. Usually. Because they couldn't afford to lose because losing meant that they would die. So they always were being way more careful.
2: Do you remember, what were we playing the other day where you kept Elden Ring? You were like more of a defensive player and I was so aggressive and you were like, how are you beating them? I don't know, man. I just went for it because I didn't care if I lost or not. And you were just like being so cautious. You were taking your time on the attack so they had more time to attack you. Yes. I feel like that would happen to Carson. Yes,
1: That, that literally is one of Rome's greatest strength. It was a weakness, but a strength. That is literally part of its history. That, Rome
2: that, is me literally just like, go for it, full set.
1: Yep. So, we say all that but it does not go well at all for the Romans in the beginning. Like at all. There was a whole series of battles in which Hannibal proved to be the vastly superior general to the Romans. First, there was a skirmish near Tasnus River in which Scipio himself was badly wounded and this was then followed by the battle at Trebia. Before we talk about that, time for an ad break.
0: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
0: Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws... I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time Podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.
1: And we're back. Okay. So even before news of the defeat that they experienced in that little skirmish at Decinius had reached Rome, the Senate goes and orders the consul Sempronius Longus to bring his army back from Sicily and face Hannibal, and his troops get there really quick. Like they arrive past Rome just after news of Ticinius had reached the city and seeing this new army is something that really helped improve their morale. Longus goes and manages to get his army all the way to Northern Italy in 40 days, which is really fast to be able to move an army like that. that is impressive. And he joins Scipio in his camp. Now, Hannibal did not face just one, like half, but a full consular army as well as troops that still remained to Scipio. So he, he faced a full army plus the additional troops that Scipio had managed to raise. Hannibal had spent his time, though, securing supplies, as well as personally scouting out any potential battlefield that he could use. And what he decided upon was the plain west of the river Trebia. Now, we, we know it is very clear that Hannibal was expecting an immediate battle. And all of our sources, when we're looking at this from the different historians, they tell us that Longus was ready to fight. He wanted to get in there. He was very aggressive, as you would probably put it, Gabby, with only Scipio advising to not go to battle, suggesting that delaying would allow them to weaken Hannibal and strengthen the Romans, which as a strategy, that makes sense. The longer that they spend, they're able to secure more supplies, get more men. Hannibal can't get any more troops as it is. And he has a very experienced army, while the Roman army is really new. It was something that was raised on an annual basis. And while it did include experienced soldiers, the majority of them would need some time to actually train up to be an effective fighting force. They were not mostly veterans.
2: Question. Did the Romans have something similar to basic training like we would have today, where you get you sign up for the army or you get drafted and you have to get shipped off to learn how to a soldier
1: they did and it's something that over time just got more and more intensive like by the time that you have not the consular army but like the manipular and the the imperial army it's a professional standardized force that you went off to training for so like you trained in the army I think there
2: obviously the one place that wins was spartans because they had basic training their entire lives but i guess rome would be
1: pretty I'd- Yo, know, very. They were still good, and the the bigger thing is that their forces were highly adaptable, and they were still skilled. Plus, Rome. Remember what we said about consuls, and they they had to be aggressive. This means that although the army only got raised like once a year or so, unless there was an emergency, it was raised for an annual basis. The troops were simultaneously something that they had oftentimes done fighting before. Maybe it was a year or two ago, but they weren't fresh green recruits. They were troops that in a martial society like Rome they're going for the attack.
2: Okay, other question. So sorry. Mm-hmm. Um did the Romans It's okay. Um
1: if you if you think of it just come back to it. It's fine. The short of it is that like while all this is going on they feel like they have every advantage even if the other troops are more experienced. So the Roman commanders go and say, "No, nah, no, nah, we're going to fight."
2: No, the question was did the Roman military just cease to exist post-battle or did they, what, did they have a standing army? Like we have military oh, good today. good question. So if we don't necessarily have to be in a conflict for the military to exist and to constantly recruit, but did they do the same or did everyone after a conflict just go right back to being fakers and shoemakers?
1: An army could be disbanded, but if I recall correctly, and I, I might be wrong on this, I might be wrong on this. When an army was raised, it was raised for a set time period too. in the first place, because you had people who were farmers and they needed to go back home to participate in the harvest. So there were usually fighting seasons that an army would be raised in. And for those troops that were raised during that time, they may be fighting at that point, but it doesn't mean they're going to be fighting the next year. So you also got to remember the army that was raised already was one that was planning to attack Sicily. It's not like um, it's not like the commander that was down there went back to Rome, raised a brand new army immediately, and then marched with that new army. That was the force that he already had, that he was planning on taking to uh, to to Africa. That that was the plan. So they think, because of their s- much more superior numbers, that they are going to win, and so the Roman commanders are going to push for an offensive battle and actually choose to engage. And at first glance it really does look like the Romans are the ones that are attacking and being the forceful ones and going after this. But it was Hannibal that had actually decided when and where and how the battle was going to be fought. See, when he was doing those inspections earlier, the plain west of Trebia was an ideal Roman battleground. It was free of any major obstacles. It was perfectly open. They could move forward with their infantry, no issues. But during his scouting, Hannibal had found a gully where he went and placed 2,000 men that was commanded by his brother, Mago. The next morning, Hannibal then sent his Numidian cavalry across the river with the orders of provoking the Romans into battle with a series of attacks on their outposts and defensive positions. Longus, the guy who really wanted to fight, reacted exactly as Hannibal had hoped. He sent his own cavalry and skirmishers against the Numidians before then ordering his main army to prepare to cross the river and offer battle. This is a slow process, mind you. This is not something that all of a sudden 30,000 men just stand up and go, okay, we're going now, and they just get there. No, for such a large and experienced army, this is a process that took probably several hours. And by the time they get there, the Roman army, who has been marching in like formations, They've been marching with, um, or not exactly informations, but they've been, or information, but they've been marching with all their equipment. They've been marching with everything. They're tired. They're wet. And they get there and they're facing a smaller, but a well rested force under Hannibal. So now the two forces are drawn up in the first major battle of the war. Hannibal goes and forms his 20,000 heavy infantry into a very thin line. In the middle of that, he places the gulls, and the libyans and the spanish on the flanks with his 10,000 cavalry he goes and splits them between the two different wings on either side of the army and of course remember he still has mago's 2,000 men that are hiding in the roman rear the roman army then forms up in their standard formation with you know you have the velites and the skirmishers in front then it's followed by the hastati the light heavy infantry of rome the principes you got the uh, you know the 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 veterans and then the triarii in the rear they're formed up in their standard Formation. They have 16,000 legionnaires in the center, along with 10,000 allied infantry on either flank, and 2,000 cavalry on each flank. By all standards, they well outnumber and should beat the Carthaginians. So Longus orders his army to advance in the traditional Roman manner, slowly, in good order. They are primarily heavy infantry after all, and the first clash that occurs, of course, is between the skirmishers of the two armies. The Roman troops, like the skirmishers, they don't carry nearly as many troops that are able to skirmish, and so they were outnumbered, tired, and of a significantly lower quality than Hannibal's forces, which are way more experienced with this, and get very quickly dispatched. The Roman cavalry, which, despite being in a greater number, also is going to suffer in a very similar way, because Roman cavalry was something that was composed of two different groups. You had the equites, which were the wealthy nobles of society that could afford a horse, basically, like the patricians. Didn't mean they had any military skill. It just means you had the money to actually have a horse. And then the second was allied cavalry. They would employ their allies who actually used cavalry more just on the flanks. But these were of significantly lower quality than the Carthaginians, who also broke them.
2: So you're telling me the Carthaginians had an established cavalry and an established navy. And they still lost to Rome. We had neither of those things. Yeah. That's a big
1: I mean, if we're going to do an episode L. on the first Punic War, I know we're, we'd be skipping it to start here at the second, but we might have to go back and do the first Punic War we just because should, of it.
2: Because now I need to know why. Well, because, first of all, Rome doesn't sound that cool when you compare it to everything that Carthage, ha- Carthage had. Like, Carthage was way more established. We have
1: focused pretty heavily on Carthage at this point for talking about things, to be fair. Okay. So, In a book about ancient Rome, we've talked a lot about Carthage.
2: I feel like once they get the book, they will get the Roman perspective. So it's, it's true. okay.
1: It's true. <laughs> so the cavalry suffers very similarly to with what happened to the skirmishers and pretty soon hannibal's own cavalry and skirmishers were now attacking the roman flank only in the center did the romans actually do better because they outnumbered hannibal's troops pretty effectively even mago's attack which did a lot to finish off the roman allies did not actually defeat the legions who managed to break through Hannibal's center and without reserves hannibal might have been in trouble But the Romans realized that even if they outnumbered the enemy here, they had lost the battle. They were going to take way more losses than they were actually going to manage to kill themselves. And 10,000 legionnaires just abandoned it. They made no attempt to rejoin the battle, and they instead fled back to Placentia. I I can see the look on your face. Did you just say Placentia? I knew the moment I said that word that I looked over your face and just, hmm? Yes. Placentia. Placentia. I know it's a rather unfortunate name here in this case, but that's its name, all right? Listen, that is its name. Anyway, this is the first defeat that Hannibal would inflict on the Roman legions, and once again, he had defeated a consul, although in this case, both consuls managed to escape, as did much of their army. Once again... Hannibal had shown himself to be the superior commander to his Roman opponents. And this time, the legions had been defeated thoroughly. But this wasn't the worst of it. Way, way worse was going to be coming to Rome. But before we get into that, it's time for an ad break. And we're back. All right, so in early 217 BC, Hannibal goes and marches his army south following the Arno River. There's a Roman general by the name of Gaius Flaminius who has stationed his legions in Arretium, which is modern Arezzo, or Arezzo. There he has the intention of stopping Hannibal's forces. But Flaminius is, um, he's not exactly a patrician or a military man. He, he, he's not trained for this. Flaminius was a populist who his power base came from the plebeians, the, 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 basically the peasants of Rome, the lower classes. And his ambitions were only matched by the fact that he was a really arrogant man who believed that he could do literally anything with no fail and that it was his destiny to do this and sway public opinion in his favor. He wanted to take victory because if he could get victory, this would mean glory and it would secure all of his political ambitions. It was everything that he wanted. So he rushes forward with a new army eager to secure victory. I can see the look on your face. Yeah, yeah. This was a common thing that would happen with Roman politicians. It 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 would happen.
2: Like I get it, but how do they not see the error of their ways? I guess hindsight is twenty twenty.
1: So allow me to point something out. They had really good leaders, and this was a thing that happened by being able to cycle out forces or cycle out leaders so often, so you didn't get just bad ones who were constantly in charge. But the funny thing is, when you look at the Republican days with the consoles and the way that the systems work, you had all of these leaders that worked for a short amount of time but it was, le- it was politicians that became military commanders. Whereas in the later half of the Republic and going into the Empire days, it was generals who became politicians. So it was men with way more military experience at that time who were going to be taking charge of things in politics. That was not the case here. So passing along the northern shore of Lake Trasimene with the ultimate goal at striking at Apulia Hannibal learns that the Romans are now marching against him again. So looking at the train, he decides that he is going to plan a massive ambush along the lake shore. The area along the lake was reached by passing through a very narrow area to the west, which opened down into a narrow plain. To the north of the road to Malpasso, there were wooded hills with the lake to the south. As bait, Hannibal goes and establishes a camp, which is visible, from that area, like that that defile where you first enter into the path. And just to the west of the camp, he deploys his heavy infantry all along the low rise from which they could now charge down into the head of any Roman column that approached. On the hills extending west, he placed his light infantry in concealed positions. Further west, hidden in a wooded valley, Hannibal would form up his Gallic infantry and cavalry. And these forces were intended to sweep down upon the Roman rear and then prevent them from escaping. As the final ruse, and this is this is a genius move, in the night before battle, he goes and orders, orders his men to light up a whole bunch of cook fires in the Toro Hills, much further away, in order to confuse the Romans as to actually where he was. Because as they're marching, they can see the fires off in the distance, so they're like, okay, the Carthaginian army is there. But in reality, they were way closer and in a completely different part.
2: They fell for it, though. They
1: fell for it hook, line, and sinker. So marching hard the next day, because Flaminius wants to get there as soon as possible, he rushes his men forward in an attempt to meet the enemy. And approaching the defile, he continues to push his men, and despite advice from his officers to please wait in order for Servilius to arrive, he determines that he is going to exact revenge upon the Carthaginians, and he pushes his troops forward. In an effort to split the Roman army, Hannibal then goes down and sends a skirmishing force forward, which succeeds in drawing Flaminius's vanguard away from the main body of the army. And as the rear of the Roman column exits that defile, Hannibal orders a trumpet sounded and his entire force, not his entire force, but the entire Roman force that is now trapped in this narrow plain is then attacked by Carthaginians that emerge from their positions and ride down upon them. As they go down, the cavalry of Carthage goes and blocks the road east, sealing the trap. And as they stream down from the hills, Hannibal's men completely catch the Romans off guard by surprise, and they're not able to form up into an actual military formation. It becomes complete chaos. They have to fight in complete open order, no formation, no shield to shield to be able to protect each other. It is just a brutal melee with these men who've charged down from the hills onto their position and quickly separated into three groups, the Romans desperately try to battle for their lives. And it is a disaster. In less than four hours, Rome's army was annihilated.
2: They got played.
1: They got completely played.
2: By a 26-year-old.
1: I'm thinking he's older at this point now, but yes. By a 30-year-old. The vanguard that had rushed forward to chase after, you know, the enemies that were, they were baited into going after which was a significantly smaller force and not worth it, they saw very little combat. And so once they learned what was happening in their rear, they had to hack through the skirmishers and other people that were trying to surround them and get out of the forest.
2: Okay, can we talk about what happened if a Roman unit retreated?
1: Oh, like in the case of... Um, decimation. Like decimation, yeah. I That didn't necessarily apply here because it was a desperate escape to try to get out. That's versus more like, oh, hey, we're in the thick of combat and. We don't know if we're going to win. And you abandon the field of battle. Not, hey, we're surrounded and getting destroyed. We need to get out of here in order to reform up.
2: So they were allowed to escape in battle. They just weren't allowed to escape if they had a potential of winning.
1: If Yeah, if it was a loss, like it was an outright loss. We were ambushed. We were getting crushed. It is getting ripped. They didn't just run away. They fought their way out. They fought and broke through the skirmishers that had baited them in. And then broke out of the forest.
2: Truly, who was there to snitch? Like, which person is going back to say, hey, my entire unit retreated. We should decimate them.
1: Well, not the commander. Definitely not the commander. Because uh, out Uh, of that. First
2: of all, if I were in the unit that retreated, kill the commander. First of all, like, we don't need middle management out here. It's snitching.
1: You didn't have to in this case. Out of the 30,000 that were deployed by the Romans, 15,000 were either outright just killed in battle, or they drown trying to escape.
2: Also, I say that, but I am middle management, and I personally know that our only job is to snitch. That's why I said that.
1: (laughs) Flaminius himself also was slain uh, over the course of that battle. 10,000 men are reported to have made their way back to Rome by various means. The rest, that other 5,000, were captured and enslaved. Well, I say and enslaved. There's a little interesting detail here because this is something that was... Couldn't they just um, make
2: them join their army?
1: Kind of. Kind of that. That kind of happened because
2: I would do that.
1: So, if you were Roman, you were enslaved. If you were one of the allied cities, and your troops were conscripted by Rome to fight, then Hannibal released you.
2: Oh, that's so. Sweet he of released him. them
1: because he wanted those men to ally with him, and this is a strategy that, as the years would go by, he flipped almost all of southern Italy to him.
2: How did they lose? I'm. Literally, rooting. I know
1: we're going to get into that. It is, there's a reason why this war went on for 17 years. Like,
2: I'm personally here, like, go, Hannibal, I love you. (laughs) And which is like the complete opposite of every other person listening right now, I'm sure.
1: Yep. So, Rome realizes at this point that their very existence is being threatened. This is not going to be an easy thing. It's not even going to be a hard thing. It is a fight to the light, like a fight to the death over this. But before we go into that, let's have a quick ad break. So this new dictator was going to play things way more cautiously with the Carthaginians. Basically, the idea behind it was that they were going to refuse to meet them in battle and bide their time, which although this is something that would preserve Rome, it would simultaneously really anger a lot of its politicians, which if you remember what we talked about earlier, these are the guys that um they, they needed military glory, they needed to attack so that that was not something that they wanted. There ended up being a whole incident where after some minor little skirmish where this guy got victory, he ended up getting appointed as co-dictator to the dictator that was in charge. So now you got two dictators that were ruling Rome with one of them advocating for being cautious. The other one was like, no, we're going to attack. It it doesn't work out well. So with um with new, more aggressive leaders once again taking charge of the armies, disaster would again soon follow. In the annual required election, they named Lucius Aemilius Paulus and Caius Terentius Varro as consul. Paulus was an aristocrat and did advocate for being a little bit more careful, while Varro's power came primarily from the plebeians, and so he urged action. In the end, he's the one that uh, everything went with. This would lead to a rather minor incident that would end up blowing up to becoming something significantly bigger that would shape all of Roman history, one of the worst things that they would ever face. Hannibal had seized another grain depot, and this time it was in the half-ruined stone village of Cannae on the Adriatic shore, all the way in the south of Italy. This resulted in the Senate ordering Roman forces to unite against the Carthaginians. The new consuls would take command. Now, in typical fashion, the Carthaginian general would go to use the terrain around him to his advantage. He had time; he knew the Romans were coming, and he prepared for them. He put his fifty thousand troops close to the river Afutis or Afutis, 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 Afutis. I believe I'm butchering the name, but he put them near this river. And the idea behind that, the reason why you want to put your troops next to rivers is because if you have a smaller force, then this means that if anyone is coming next to you, they can't outflank and surround you, right? They wouldn't be able to easily do that because they're constrained with one side of their flank being completely blocked off by the water. This would restrict their maneuverability and stop them from being able to use their greater numbers. Hannibal then employed his customary tactic of high mobility in the field and enveloped the enemy army while his cavalry attacked from the rear. The idea of this, what happened, and why this was so dumb, and I want to do this as a battle. In fact, I think I might do the Battle of Cannae. I I know we're recording this now, but I kind of want to do the Battle of Cannae for the the second history video that I'm going to be putting out this week. The Battle of Cannae, the forces that attacked Hannibal balled up their tens of thousands of troops 80,000 of them, if I recall correctly, into one massive heavy infantry block and just shoved it right down the center of their line. This was the equivalent of putting everyone just in a line, linking arms together and saying, go push, attack the enemy. Because they outnumbered them, so it should be easy. Hannibal spread his forces so thinly that it looked like they were going to be able to easily break through. But what happened was, as the Romans attacked, the center of the Carthaginian line, Gradually began to retreat and fall back, not run away, but still, like, kind of faced the enemy. While the flank of his army continued to surround the Romans on both sides of the flank. So, this thin line ended up enveloping like a rope around the entire Roman army until all 80,000 of them or so were trapped inside the circle. What followed was a slaughter.
2: So, they had 30,000 more men than Hannibal, and they lost.
1: I think, yeah, yeah, they had about 30,000 more men than Hannibal. They lost. The infantry wrapped around both sides, and then Hannibal moved his cavalry after driving off the Roman cavalry to attack from the rear, and it was a slaughter. 50,000 of the Romans were killed, compared to around 5,700 on the Carthaginian side, most of those being Gauls that were pretty much expendable. Hannibal's forces seemed unstoppable.
2: What did the Gauls do to become expendable?
1: They were just the levied allied forces. They weren't his professional forces. They weren't the ones that he really needed. But they were the additional forces. They were the bodies that would help pad out his his army.
2: Ancient warfare sounds so... Brutal? Awful. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Again, yeah, no, yeah, that's history. And some places are worse than others. Just wait until you hear about half the stuff that would go on with China. China would conscript hundreds of thousands of troops into an army and then just throw them at each other. Most of the troops had little to no training whatsoever. To be fair, that's that's true for a lot of nations, but still the amount of peasants that were just thrown into a meat grinder was a lot. The funny thing is though, despite these massive victories, despite driving back the Romans time and time again and embarrassing them, Hannibal never went for Rome. He never took it. He was right outside of the gates of Rome. And never actually tried to lay siege to and take the city. It's been debated for years as to why he did this and whether or not it was a smart move. I mean, actually, not why. It wasn't
2: a smart move.
1: We know why. Why? The reason why Hannibal did it is because, remember, his goal was to tear Rome apart from the inside out. It was to turn all of Rome's allies against it. So he stayed in southern Italy going through all these different allied cities because the majority of states that were in southern italy like the majority of these cities were allied they weren't they weren't roman and by inciting rebellion in them and switching them over to his side he believed that he would be able to tear rome apart from the inside and be able to levy it so that it wasn't going to be a threat against carthage again
2: okay i see his line of reasoning i really do but wouldn't have been easier to do? Ju- like when you're fighting a spider you don't go find all of the other spiders and try to turn them to your side. You just stomp on that spider. Yeah. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: I feel exactly what you're saying. I, I like your comparison. That's a, that's, a re- that's a really good one.
2: I've been playing a lot of um,
1: a Harry Potter that- Legacy.
2: Well, I don't want to say the name. <laughs> it's very controversial. Or Hogwarts thing. Legacy,
1: yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I entirely get your point. And historians to this day still debate as to whether or not it was a smart move. It wasn't. It, and I'm not a historian. Like, I'm
2: well, a scientist. We, I will go straight to the point. We it can was see a the result. Move.
1: We can see the result. The result he is it lost. didn't work.
2: It was a bad. If it didn't work, have we considered the fact that if it. OK, in science, we have like a null hypothesis and a, and a hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. If it didn't work. Right. So let's say the null hypothesis was not attacking Rome will not. X, Y, Z, right? You know? Yeah. Like, not attacking Rome would lead to victory or something like that. He proved that it would not work. Yeah. So I'm assuming we. it's safe to say his tactic was bad. Yeah. Because it did not work.
1: Yeah. And he wasn't able to flip all of the people against Rome. Yeah, he flipped over a number of them. A number of places would rise up against Rome. The cities that Rome had assumed would be some of the most loyal, but there was a bunch of places that were freshly conquered that did flip. But all the different Latin colonies and all of central Italy remained loyal to Rome, which meant that Hannibal's new acquisitions, anything that he took, had to be constantly defended. The expected breakup of Rome's hegemony over Italy didn't happen. And Hasdrubal and the other forces that were in Spain and Carthage could not support him by sea. Remember, Carthage didn't, they had a, a, a navy that they were building up at this point, right? But they didn't have the big superior navy to get naval dominance. Rome may have been reeling, but Hannibal was completely isolated and on his own in Italy. So then we're going to look at this and go, well, okay, well, what, what, what tactic would they use? How would they stop him? The answer was to flip back to what the cautious dictator was saying. They just stopped going after him. They let his army, over time, gradually wear itself out from lack of supply and general attrition. Hannibal tried desperately to try and conquer a port city, uh, like Neapolis, as an example, which is modern-day Naples, and also Tarentum, which is Toronto, but all attempts at this failed, as did his repeated attacks on other places like Nola. Hannibal may have been able to defeat several large Roman armies, but Rome itself refused to give up, and any time that he sent a peace deal to them, it was immediately rejected. Never even considered. Nope, just nope, not, not, no. No peace. No peace. And so now with his forces isolated, the more that he conquered, the harder and harder it would become for him to actually defend the land as he took it, because he simply did not have the manpower to do so. As he would move on, like the moment he conquered a place and would go on to the next, the Romans would simply move back in and take the territory that he took.
2: Oh my God, it's me playing Hoi Four.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just a game of whack-a-mole that he didn't have the truth. He couldn't get more. And so this was the strategy of the dictator, Fabius. Although this was occasionally interrupted by different zealous commanders who were, you know, they were eager to get some glory for their one year of office as consul. His strategy was slowly working. And over time, the Romans began to back Hannibal into an ever smaller pocket of land so that by the year 207 BC, he only controlled Brutium in the heel of Italy itself. All the land that he had taken, the majority of Rome's land, at least at one point or another, he lost all of it back again. Of course, Hannibal could not be everywhere at once. So you know how we focused entirely on, uh, on Italy during this point of time and all of Hannibal's victories and all the stuff that he was doing? Carthage was a North African power, and a lot of their money came out of Spain. The Romans weren't just going to sit there and only deal with Italy. Meanwhile, Carthage has all of its bases in Spain and everything else. They simultaneously were launching attacks into Spain, into Sicily, into any of the territories that Carthage still controlled to cut off any source of Carthaginian supply, and as a result, they lost all of Spain by 206 BC. By 204 BC, Rome would then decide to bring the fight to Carthage itself, with Consul Scipio Africanus then landing in North Africa with 30,000 men.
2: Scipio Africanus was Roman?
1: Yep. His name was Scipio, and I can't even remember what his... Actual other name. It was like Gaius. No, no, Scipius, no. We Afri- need a moment
2: of silence for the fact that to this day. Wait, what? Since 2020, when people start at 2021, when people start asking a question, I have never once thought Scipio Africanus was Roman. Why is that? Because of his name.
1: Because of Africanus? Do you know what that actually means in here?
2: No clue. And that's why I was wrong.
1: Conqueror of Africa. Ooh. Yeah.
2: Wow, Scipio means conquer.
1: No, 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 Africanus. You, How
2: does that mean African? It
1: wasn't his original name. He earned the title Africanus, like Germanicus, conqueror of Germany.
2: You're joking. No. Why?
1: That was a common, if you did something great like this in Roman times, you added a name to yourself.
2: You've seen my classes, you've seen my grades. Why have I never learned that? I
1: don't know, I don't know. And probably because this wasn't something that you focused on. I mean, it's it's not really anything harmful here. It's I've just that's what happened. There
2: multiple classes in history, though. That's the thing. Like at some point, somebody would have said, hey, if it ends in us, then they conquered you.
1: Yeah. At least in the case of the Romans, that's what they did. Yeah.
2: So anyway, when my name's Americanus, cut that out, James. Cut uh. that out. <laughs> James, James, cut no. it out.
1: We're at the end here anyway, or pretty much. So I've I've gone on too long in telling all of this story there there are more battles there are more characters there are events that if i included in this and all of the story this episode would probably be 4 to 5 hours minimum i skipped a whole bunch of stuff going into this and i am looking at the clock on this and it's been an hour and 15 minutes so far i think well i mean if you take for the little time skip probably like an hour and 12 minutes basically we've been going on for a while the way that this thing ends is that carthage itself is now being threatened and hannibal is forced to return from italy to Carthage to defend the city in one last desperate throw of the dice. In October of 202 BC, the armies of Hannibal and Scipio would meet on a plane in western Tunisia near Naragara. The two commanders actually then went and go and meet in person in a conference where Hannibal tries perhaps to request a peace settlement, but Scipio, very keen on ending this long war and earning himself massive huge political points from this, a huge showpiece battle and earning himself a triumph back in Rome, says no. What follows is the battle that is referred to as the Battle of Zama, because that is the town that was on Hannibal's route to the battlefield. Scipio fields approximately 30,000 infantry, 5,500 cavalry, and that includes 6,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry from allied forces of, uh, I think, Numidians or Libyans. I'm I'm drawing a blank on which one it is but he has a couple allied forces from something that had been involved in a previous civil war that Rome ended up uh, intervening in in order to secure an ally in North Africa. Hannibal had a mix of Italian veterans and new recruits and numbered around 45,000 men, along with 2,000 Numidian cavalry from his ally, Zacchaeus. Hannibal's troops fought well, especially the veterans that were placed in the rear of the three lines. But his opening big move with the 80 Carthaginian war elephants these were very easily dealt with by Scipio in one of the most cited battles in history. Scipio had placed his legionnaires in such a position so that he would create channels that would allow the animals to pass through harmlessly when they charged. So, as the elephants charged, meanwhile, Gabby, they're formed up, so they're not in a line. They just form into blocks, let the elephants pass through the massive gaps in their lines, and then as the elephants turn around and are harassed, this sends them into a panic causing the elephants to charge right back into the Carthaginian forces. And so these elephants are then herded back into the Carthaginian forces, where they wreak havoc in their lines. The Roman and Numidian cavalry then hit Hannibal's forces in the rear, and that was pretty much it. Victory was theirs. 20,000 Carthaginians had fallen. Meanwhile, Rome suffered fewer than 5,000 fatalities. The Second Punic War was lost and Hannibal would have to sue for peace terms. The Romans insisted on Carthage giving up its entire fleet, except for a mere ten ships. They had to give up all elephants and all Roman prisoners.
2: The elephants!
1: Yep. Further, Carthage would not be able to make war without Rome's permission, and they had to recognize the territories of the new Numidian king, Massinissa, that was the ally that they had secured, and then to pay reparations to Rome in the huge sum of ten thousand talents over the next half century 50 years that's not bad yeah well you considering that they had been destroyed not once but twice and remember where most they got most of that silver from spain spain yeah the romans took complete possession of spain so all those silver mines everything that they had gone carthage would have to pay it on its own it was in the end the complete destruction of carthage as a power
2: Dang it, I was rooting for them this entire time. I mean, obviously, I knew they lost, but wow.
1: Yeah, to be fair, there was a third Punic War. It didn't really amount to much, though.
2: Obviously, because all we know about is Rome. Who talks about Carthage?
1: Yeah, so remember how the first war was 25 years? The second war was 17 years. If I recall correctly, the third war was five, three years long. Ooh. Significantly shorter. If anything, this war for the third time was closer to putting an old man out of its misery than anything else.
2: How did they, um, how did they agree on the end of a war? How did they agree on peace terms? Because you remember even in World War II, there were places where communication was lacking, where people did not know the war ended. Like
1: So typically speaking, the consuls, those, the ones who were in charge, they could negotiate for peace themselves. And then fighting would stop because they're the ones who are in control of the army. And then they would send the terms back to Rome for approval and then fighting would stop while they're waiting. In this case, Rome got everything that it wanted. Carthage was effectively dismantled and that was the end of them and the beginning of the ultimate rise of Rome to be the dominant power in the Mediterranean, not to be challenged there again for several hundred more years.
2: Why am I so upset? Anyway, next episode, we're going to cover the fall of the Roman Empire because now I'm mad. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, before we go ahead and end things here today, it is time for today's uh, listener story. And Gabby, you you gave me this one and just said, hey, I just read the, the title. Please just just read this one that you didn't actually he look at it. He made
2: the most clickbaity introduction sentence. So now I'm like, yes, please. I don't know what this story entails. So All right. Tell so me I,
1: it. So I'm going to read this word for word for what I got here from Ted. Why, hello, History of Everything podcast from the terrible country of the UK. My heritage is quite interesting on both sides of my family, but my great uncle on my mother's side is documented more than my father's family history. So, without further deliberation, I hereby announce that I'm the king of Scottish Atlantis.
2: See <laughs>
1: what the hell? Alright, well, allow me to explain. Oh, oh, I see, I see, I see you're pulling from uh, from my card of what I usually what I usually say, and allow me to explain. Let me explain. So in 1208, when an earlier attempt of the Magna Carta was foiled by King John, one of the perpetrators was Hugh Holmes, who fled to Scotland and settled in a small village near the border in a region called Mardale. They were highly valued by the local community for their deeds and actions, such as building churches and supposedly fighting of bandits. Hence, they were given the honorary title of King of Mardale. This trend of the family continued up until the late 1800s, where the final named Queen of Mardale met with Queen Victoria, I I can't actually confirm this part, but that's how the story goes, and Mardale was then flooded in the early 1900s. You know, it almost sounds like Victoria cursed them, so that would happen immediately after, but you never know. Now, you can go diving in the old village, in fact. Now, if you were to follow the family tree of the kings of Mardale, I would be a competing heir, and as one of the few who publicly state it without competition, I hereby declare I am the king of Scottish Atlantis. So it's because of the Mardale is underwater and he's using us as a platform to announce his claim to the world. And it's like, no, this is the most official thing. No one else could do it because anyone could just post something on Facebook here. But I think this is going to reach a number of more people than that probably would in this scenario.
2: Congrats on your coronation as king of Scottish Atlantis. Woo.
1: Thanks for the amazing podcast and episodes. And I wish you a good week when you read this. Thank you very much, Ted. P.S. The Scottish clan. I'm also descended from. The Strachans had a war cry that meant we live on a hill with a boob. (laughs) Okay, I... What?
2: This is one of like the top five stories.
1: I have to look this up now. What? Anyway, thank you everyone for listening to this. If you want to look up the clan, I guess uh, the Strachans, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N-S, Strachans. I'm going to have to look up their war cry after this and just see what it is.
2: Also, don't forget to um, say all hail King Ted
1: yes indeed indeed like ted lasso but this one is underwater uh
2: (laughs) listen if he figures out a way you know how they refloat ships if he figures out a way to refloat his little um kingdom he, he he's royalty indeed yeah
1: anyway thank you everyone for listening i hope you have a good rest of your day please make sure to check out our patreon uh, make sure to check out this month's audiobook. All of this is based off of Ancient Rome by Simon Baker. So please, if you could go ahead and check out the book in the description and get it, it is a huge help to the channel. It's on sale for like $2.99 right now, so it's really cheap. This is something we do every month, and I really look forward to presenting you all with more stories. Goodbye, everyone, and have a good rest of your day.